Thank you, Gavin musicians and music team just a beautiful array of songs really in light of what we're going through in the gospel of john love the way you link that together so well great to see you all middle of winter now snows on the hills a few sneezes in the house but all is well last week i asked you to park something over here Three things, the seeking of satisfaction in the wrong place, power, as in divine power for the spiritual life, power from the wrong source, Jesus is enough for me, those three things. I want you to park them over there again as we come again to the fourth chapter of the gospel of john if you're visiting with us we're working our way verse by verse through this gospel we'd love for you to join us we started to set sail last lord's day into verses 1 to 26 and we made it to about verse 10 or so and began to unpack a little of what's going on here in our passage and what we can apply to our own lives from it also john the apostle, as we've seen, really does stress throughout his gospel that Jesus came down from heaven. That Jesus alone has a heavenly origin, meaning that he has a divine nature and that as the God-man, he has come to reveal to us who God is. So that in knowing him as God, we might worship him as God and then display to the world that it is from God in the person of Christ where our true and lasting joy and satisfaction comes from. We saw last week that Jesus, the Son, comes from comes sent from the Father to a lost and dying and hopeless humanity in what theologians call the condescension of Christ. And we saw how this encounter with this woman at the well is a prime example of that condescension. That though Jesus was rich in possession of the divine nature, yet for our sakes he became poor, never laying aside his divine nature, but that in his poverty, in his incarnation, that we would become rich, rich in spiritual wealth and spiritual resources and rich in spiritual blessings. As he entered down into the world, coming to our level, reaching out to us, us who truly are not deserving in any way of his love and his grace, but instead worthy truly only of his holy and wrathful justice. And I think that's important for us to always be reminding ourselves of. An important thing to always be bringing before our hearts and minds that to be a Christian is to have not gotten what you truly deserve. But instead have been lavished with grace and love that you truly did not deserve you know the hymn 
the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. We've been lavished what we don't deserve. That's praiseworthy. And so this little passage of scripture here, this little portion, it really is a beautiful little piece of this beautiful gospel. And so let's go ahead and read that account again. And let's pray once more after reading it to ask the Lord to give us more of who he is in the precious person of Christ. And so beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 4, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You've correctly said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come with hearts filled with gratitude. And Lord, we come with flesh unredeemed. And so, Lord, we carry about a body of death, but in us you work life. And so, Lord, work in us greater life through sitting under your word as you speak to us. Take this time we have together now in your word and do a work far abundantly beyond anything that we could ever ask or comprehend in our minds that could occur. Father, we want to bring you great glory with our life. Lord, help us. Help this precious people. Help me. Lord, we so often carry burdens, trials, suffering, hardship, heartache. But we come now to receive from you your word. Lord, do a mighty work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that I offered up three headings. Three headings for this one piece of glorious gospel tapestry, this entire encounter here with this woman at the well. If you missed the message from last week, you can pick that up online and I want to encourage you to always do that so you can be tracking along with us all. We saw first a movement, what we called a movement along a divine timeline in verses 1 through 6 there, where Jesus left off from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was that man, obviously, who was exceedingly religious, exceedingly self-righteous, exceedingly legalistic. He had an encounter with Jesus that we see later on certainly would change him. Jesus left off from that exceedingly self-righteous man and headed towards Samaria, which we saw, despite contemporary modern thought, was actually the preferred route for the Jews. And we saw that Jesus arrived tired and thirsty at the well, it's called Jacob's well, to then be met by this woman who was not exceedingly self-righteous like Nicodemus, but was exceedingly sexually immoral and licentious. And we know, don't we, that Jesus came to rescue and redeem both types of people both the self-righteous hypocrite and the sexual sinner need the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we saw that this was all 
part of Jesus' mission as the heavenly sent son. The son sent from heaven to fulfill the plan of redemption, which scripture clearly tells us in Titus chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 and 2 Timothy 1 9, which was clearly formed and fashioned in eternity past before time began. That is why, remember, it says in verse 4 that Jesus had to go to Samaria. It was a divine necessity. Then after the movement along the divine timeline, we began to look at and didn't quite finish looking at second heading, a moment of divine appointment in verses 7 to 14. It was here we really began to consider what Jesus was offering this woman and when what he offers all sinners today and also what cultural and religious barriers Jesus was breaking down here at the well. You remember to the people of the day and the religion of the day, this woman, you remember, had three major marks against her. She was, one, a woman. Two, she was not of the Jewish ethnicity. She was of the Samaritan ethnicity. Half-breed, as they say. And then three, she was a sexual sinner. And so to the religious elite of the day, she was done. To drink of her cup, which Jesus did indeed do here at the well, because after all, he was truly dehydrated. To drink of her cup was to defile himself in the eyes of the religious elite and their man-made laws. Because, you remember I quoted the Mishnah last Lord's Day, all Samaritan woman, according to the Mishnah, which was the laws and traditions of the day, all Samaritan women were ceremonially unclean at all times from the cradle to the grave. This woman comes in the middle of the day because she comes out of shame. She is exceedingly immoral, as I've said. In the eyes of the people of the day, she is ceremonially unclean. Our Lord comes and defiles himself, but not before his father. Out of shame, she comes to avoid the other ladies. The ladies would obviously, as I said, come early morning, late afternoon to avoid the heat of the day. Jesus is genuinely thirsty, asks for a drink. And in response to Jesus' question about asking for a drink, this woman then begins to ask him questions. We look at the first of those last Lord's Day, and we'll look at the others today. We concluded in that message last week, we concluded that message by highlighting that in Jesus there is true and lasting satisfaction. And we saw how prone we are to seeking true and lasting joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, not in Jesus, but in houses and good reputations and great jobs and a husband or a wife. And that even though we, as the people of God, have drunk of Christ because He has given us by His grace what we never deserved, living water, and, th and even though we've been made new in Him and drunk of Him and been united to Him and drunk of His water from which He says we'll never thirst again, we must never forget, and I believe you will know day to day, 
that due to our remaining flesh, there is that ongoing daily battle in our hearts where we are still given to seeking our joy and our satisfaction and our fulfillment in the wrong place. And therefore, we must ensure that we are identifying those treasures and idols that we are fashioning day to day in our lives and then guarding at all costs. And then after having identified those, which we'll talk about more in a coming day, having identified those in those treasures in which we guard at all costs, if ever anyone wants to seek to take them from us or highlight that we're seeking satisfaction in the wrong place or wrong thing, we need to instead begin to start treasuring Christ more and finding in Him the joy and fulfillment that God provides us in Christ and not in those things like a good reputation or the applaud of the world or a perfect husband or a perfect wife or having perfect children or having perfect health and the like because they were never designed to give us satisfaction and joy in the ultimate sense we know don't we that when we attain them when we attain a when we attain a bigger and better house or a better job or greater influence or we're well thought of by others or we finally find that perfect spouse, we soon learn, don't we, that once you do actually attain all those things, you soon discover that they leave you dissatisfied ultimately in the, in, in the end anyway. And part of the explanation of that is because the purpose and design of each of those things is not what God has planned would be that which fulfills you and I and completes you and I and satisfies you and I. But instead, they're often that which God gives us to point us to the one who satisfies our soul and gives our soul rest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of living water. And so this morning in our time together, I want to pick up again in verse 10 and then look at verses 11 through to 14 before we circle back to consider two questions. And I highly doubt we'll get through the second one. Two questions that we must ask ourselves together as a church on a deeper level if we are to truly live as John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived and marked by such humility and marked by such joy said that Jesus must increase and I must decrease, which is where true joy is found and where God gets glory. If we're going to do that, we need to ask ourselves two questions. The first one will be, what exactly is in the water? What's in the water? And the second one will be for next Lord Day, next Lord's Day. Why is Jesus enough? And so under the same heading there, we finished with last Sunday, a moment of divine appointment in verses 7 to 14. Let's pick up in verse 10. 
We will at some point down the track, Lord willing, look at heading number three, which was a Messiah revealing divine truth in verses 15 to 26. But for now, let's just kind of set sail again. I'm in no rush. I trust that you're not either. In verses 10 to 14, as it were. And once again, let's just see where we end up. Look again at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is it who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You remember here, Jesus is extending full and free grace here. He is offering this woman mercy and grace without condition. Made emphasis of that last Sunday. This is what Jesus came to do. In his first coming, Jesus comes as a visible and tangible expression and extension of the love of God. And he freely offers full and lasting forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and deep abiding joy to all people from all places without condition. I mean, that is a scandal to the world. That is an absolute scandal. Remember that the living water that Jesus offers to any and all people and who he is offering here to this woman at the well is not offered on the condition that the person first clean themselves up and then drink of it. Look at verse 10 once more and see the key word that Jesus uses there. He says, if you knew the, here's the key word, the gift. If you knew the gift of God, you would ask. The word gift there is stressing, really stressing and emphasizing the freeness of what it means to receive new life in Christ. New life in Christ, being made a new creation in Christ, cannot be earned. There can be nothing done to merit new life in Christ. There is no work that can be performed so as to have your sins forgiven and to be made new in Christ where all the old things pass away and behold, all things become new. This is a scandal in the eyes of the world and particularly in the eyes of people from every other religion in the world. Why? There's no work to perform. There's no work to perform. There's no condition upon entry. Just full and free grace and mercy upon receiving the free gift of new life in Christ without cost and without condition. A scandal to the world and a miracle to the, to the Christian. I want to ask you a question for a moment. Can you imagine if it was required of you to perform a work before you received full and free grace? Number one, you'd have something to boast about. Number two, you couldn't ever do it anyway. And so without the sovereign grace of God in the person of Christ, we would be despaired and lost and still by the well. Let that warm your heart this morning. That you've walked on from the well. 
You've walked on from the well. Eternal life is yours. Walked on from the well. Can someone say amen, please? Thank you. This woman at the well, she did not at this present moment know the life-giving miracle in the person of Christ that was right before her. Look at what she says in response in verse 11 and 12. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And then her tone changes. I'll explain why. You're not greater than our father Jacob. He gave us this well and he drank of it himself. Not only did he drink of it, his animals drank of it. You're not greater than him, are you? I agree with J.C. Ryle who said of the woman's words here that they were, quote, they imply surprise, curiosity, and sneer. Sneer. In her own mind, the answer to her own question about whether this thirsty Jewish man before her was greater than Jacob was a resounding no. She even calls, you'll note there, Jacob our father. Note that. Our father. Josephus, the earliest of Jewish historians, wrote of how the Samaritans believed that all Samaritans were direct descendants of Jacob. And so let it be known that the Jews weren't the only ones who held to a sort of ethnic pride that caused them to disdain other people groups. Yes, Jews despise Samaritans, but never think that Samaritans did not suffer from their own form of ethnic prideful, sinful malady. And so she has before her a Jew, and he's not making any sense at all. In fact, he's big noting himself in her eyes, but she doesn't yet understand what is happening. She believes that this ragged-looking, tired, thirsty man before her is claiming to be superior to that of the man who is the descendant of her people and the builder of of the well. But we know, don't we, that in a glaring irony, the man that she is low key mocking is actually greater than both the Jacob whom she's taking pride in and the water inside the well that bears his name. The water from Jacob's well quenched your thirst for a moment. Jesus' water altered your mind, affections, will, and actions for this life and for all eternity. And then it's, it's from that not yet revealed kind of shadow of irony that Jesus now hits the accelerator and displays here what John Piper rightly called not an arrogant superiority, but a gracious superiority. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
Jesus gives superior water, resulting in superior life, giving superior purpose and identity and joy. The first thing I want you to see here in Jesus' response in verses 13 to 14 is that Jesus is indeed drawing from Old Testament promises and even in some way acting as fulfillment of those promises in a very picturesque way, if you will. Listen carefully to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. It says this, You will joyously draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 49, 8 to 10. Let me read it for you. This is what Yahweh says. At a favorable time, I answered you. And on a day of salvation, I helped you. They will feed along the roads and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and he will guide them to springs, wells of water. I think we'd do well now to begin to ask and answer the first of those two questions. What's in the water? Obviously, Jesus is not talking about physical, literal water when he speaks about the water that he gives. Actual water we drink, I looked it up this week, it contains calcium and magnesium and chloride and sodium and potassium. And if you live in Havelock North from time to time, Campolabacta. But as we hear Jesus say what he does to this Samaritan woman by the well, what's in the water? And to begin to answer this question, turn with me to Isaiah 55, please, for a moment. Isaiah chapter 55, and look at verse 1. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make, look at this, an everlasting covenant with you. And so first, what's in the water? The water is about making souls live. And second, in the water is an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant that God makes with His people. And turn ahead with me to the very next book of the Bible, to Jeremiah, and look at chapter 31. 
Jeremiah 31 and look at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, the Mosaic covenant, although I was a husband of them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so also in the water is the law of God no longer written on stone but on the human heart. And in the water as well is the forgiveness of sins. Note there they are remembered no more. Under the old covenant, come, make atonement for sin. God remembers your sin by the morning. Come the next day, make an atonement for sin, God remembers your sin the next morning. In Christ, in the new covenant, all our sins are remembered no more. That's what's in the water. Full and complete forgiveness of all past and present and future sins. Turn ahead with me now again to the next book in the Bible, the book of Ezekiel. And look at chapter 36. Well, a couple over actually. Verse 36. And look at verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. Verse 26. Or rather, verse 25, sorry. Yahweh speaking again. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so in the water, as well, there is permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God, which brings about new life, brought from spiritual death to life, indwelt by the very life of God in our very heart and soul, working in and through us. This woman at the well was born under the law. Like this woman at the well, we too were born in Adam. Anyone outside of Christ is in Adam. All in Adam are promised eternal life if they 
perfectly and perpetually, which just means ongoing, keep the law. That's the promise. If you can perfectly and perpetually keep the law, then eternal life is yours. That's what God requires. Perfect and perpetual, as I said, which just means on unending and ongoing, perfect and ceaseless obedience, and a person can have eternal life. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which, listen to this, by which a man may live. That is, live eternally, if he does them. The Apostle Paul picks up that verse in Leviticus and writes this in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. He writes, For Moses writes of the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who performs them will live by them, will possess eternal life by perpetually and perfectly obeying the law. That is to say, if you keep the law perfectly, you can have eternal life. But what did Jesus say to the woman? He said, drink this water and you have eternal life. Receive this water and you have eternal life. Without condition. Without a work to perform. Without perfectly and perpetually keeping the law. And so in the water, as well, is all the righteous requirements of the law. That's what's in the water as well. You no doubt by now can recite with me the purpose of the Gospel of John. It was written so that one might believe in Jesus and so that then in believing you might have what? Life in His name. That's right out of John chapter 20 verse 31. It is, as I've stated repeatedly, the purpose is twofold. It's an evangelistic purpose and an experiential purpose. Evangelistic in that one might believe unto justification. Experiential in that one might then live out sanctification. Beholding the glory of Christ. And here is the key to understand between justification and sanctification. And I thought long and hard about this week, and this is what I wrote down. In justification, which is what it means to be declared righteous before God in a legal, forensic sense, which is ours by trust, by faith in Christ alone. In justification, God requires perfect and perpetual obedience. You and I can never do that. We fail at every turn. We can never work the works required. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. He worked what we never could. And so in justification, 
which we know is by faith alone, not by any works of our flesh. Justification is by faith alone. We are then imputed with, credited with, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which He earned for us. We are saved by works, just not our works, as Sproul used to say. We're saved by Jesus' works. He merited and earned for us in His living and in His dying a righteousness. And so in the water is Christ's life and death and resurrection as well. And so as Jesus offers this woman the living water, He is offering her what He will then soon go on to purchase on the cross which are all the promises of the new covenant. We just surveyed them. Full and lasting sins forgiven. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The law of God written on our hearts. And then, in Jesus' death upon the cross, which we reflected upon in the Lord's table, which His the, what we could call, what we do call, the ratification of the new covenant. You remember that Jesus ushered in the new covenant by the shedding of His blood? Well, in the shedding of His blood, He then unites us to all the promises of the new covenant. But Jesus also, upon that cross, not only does He usher in the new covenant and connect us to all those promises of the new covenant, Jesus upon the cross also purchases for us all the blessings of the application of redemption. I realize that's a lot to swallow. What are the spiritual blessings that are applied to us in regeneration? Which we know is when the Spirit of God comes and makes us alive. When the Spirit comes and makes us alive, He applies to us all the blessings that Christ purchased for us in His actual redemption upon the cross actual redemption in that Jesus actually made atonement on that cross, it is not as though it is waiting for a person to believe in order for that atonement to be effective. No, no, no. That atonement was absolutely effective. It was an actual atonement because the Father gave the Son a people to redeem before time when Jesus was on that cross, He actually redeemed them. And in redeeming them, He actually purchased for them what they could never purchase for themselves. Namely, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, 
and glorification. And so what's in the water? Everything. Everything is in the water. Everything required for eternal life. Everything required for us to be made right with God and to live for God here on earth is in the water. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and look at verse 6. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, but he now has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Which has been enacted on better promises. Look, if you are born into this world in this new covenant age, there is living water that can wash you clean. And you don't ever have to keep going back to that well like the Jews would go back to that temple. We are so blessed, are we not? In the water is our justification. In the water is our adoption. In the water is our sanctification. In the water is our perseverance. And in the water is our glorification. Everything is in the water. Look at chapter 9 and verse 8 of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. This is talking about the old covenant, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered. This is under the old covenant, the pigeons and the doves and the bulls and the goats and whatever else. They're offered, which, look at what it says there, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed. Look at this. Until a time of reformation. Oh yeah, there was one reformation when Martin Luther with the mallet laid 95 pieces on the door. That's one thing. But I tell you what, when God came and worked in the heart, that's another one. There's two reformations in this world. This is the reformation here of our heart where the water comes. Rivers of living water and washes us clean. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. I could keep going and going and going. It is an offense in the sight of God, to ever think that God's plan of redemption, a blueprint, a glorious blueprint, which included this living water that Jesus gives, it is an offense to God to ever think that that blueprint, that eternal plan of redemption, is somehow edited upon a person's belief. No, no. Jesus gives to his people all that his people need to bring him glory. Someone say amen. What's in the water? Everything, including, as we just read, a cleansed conscience, inner transformation. Imagine not having a cleansed conscience. Couldn't sleep, doubtful, fearful, 
worried, anxious, seeking satisfaction in all the wrong things and going to all the wrong places. But the water washes our conscience clean. Rest, peace, joy. One drink is enough. Once we have received the living water, we live life in full possession of eternal life. When Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus whom you have sent. It's a little bit different now when you know that in eternal life is all the promises of the new covenant and all the purchased blessings from justification through to glorification. Eternal life is this water that is springing up. It is in every new covenant recipient. That's what's in the water. Our time is up and we don't want to rush. But I'll tell you this. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Yahweh says, My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and dug for themselves wells that hold no water. We are a privileged people indeed. Let's keep looking to Jesus. Father, we come before you and say thank you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity it is to be a recipient of this living water. Lord, spare us the pain from looking for other water. Father, help us to stop digging other wells. Help us to always be looking and being reminded of what we have in Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in you. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet received this living water, would they come now and realize they receive it without condition? That they don't have to clean themselves up in order to receive this water, but yes, Lord, the water will clean them up. But we don't preach moralism. We preach Jesus Christ. So. Come to Christ. And for us who are Christ's, may we live dead to this world. I care not for the applaud of this world. I fear not the scorn of this world. And I know my brothers and sisters here don't either. We want to live to your glory. We are so grateful for all that you've done. And in light of all that, we want to live for you and no longer live for ourselves and all God's people said.